I invite you to turn in the scriptures with me to the first gospel written, the first words of the first gospel written. It's Mark chapter 1. I'm using, the, uh, I'm using uh, a copy of the, the, of, of the new black hardback um, Bible that, uh, that our church gives away. If, uh, if you're here this morning as a guest, if you're here this morning and you've been here forever but you need a Bible, these Bibles are for you. We believe in the Word of God and we want it to be in your hands. And then when you get it home, do something with it other than let it collect desk, dust on the, uh, on the coffee table. It is a good looking Bible, but it, it's, it's made for more than that. Mark chapter 1. Verse 1, last, last week we were in Mark chapter 2, and we, 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 we kicked off the year with Jesus is for and against, and we talked about uh, Jesus being for life and for wholeness and for friends. Here we hear Mark begin with, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. And then, and then he quotes an Old Testament prophet, but unlike Matthew and, and some a little bit Mark, the, the, the opening Old Testament prophecy isn't about Jesus, it's about someone else. Look, I'm sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way, a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River, and they were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He ate locust, yes, locust, and wild honey. He announced, one stronger than I am is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for we the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. And indeed, there are, there are some things that sort of jump out at you. If, uh, if, if a gospel writer is having to describe what you wore, then what you wore was out of the norm, right? Uh, camel's hair was not like in style, uh, you know, with, uh, with, with the fall fashion shows or anything like that. And locusts are exactly what you think they are. They are bugs. And everybody in the room is allowed to say, ooh, <clears throat> yeah. But I guess maybe they're better with honey. Is that what he's suggesting? What, what Mark begins by saying is that the baptism of John was about changing hearts and lives so that we would trust God hearts and lives so that we would trust God. And in particular, I want to drill down for a moment just just changing hearts and lives to me is the fullness of who we are. See, see to 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 describe to describe a person's life as being just their actions is not sufficient. We we know we know that actions speak louder than words, but but that doesn't mean words don't matter, right? And anybody in the room that happens to um, share the same love language that I do, which is words of affirmation, knows. And the Gary Chapman book, if you've never read it, I, I, I buy a copy. I give it to all of the, the, the couples that, uh, that I marry. It's a phenomenal book. And, for, and so for me, words of affirmation is my love language. And you better believe that, that when you're relating to me, actions matter, but so do words. 
But, but I would add a third element, not just actions, not just words, but, and, and I'm, I'm learning more. I'm trying to figure out how far I can go. Okay. <laughs> um, <sighs> but there's also an element beyond actions, beyond words, habits. And, and, I, and I've been reading, and maybe I, maybe I even let it slip out a little week, uh, last week, with, with some of what I was talking about, like, like, like the psychology of how we work. Our habits are so powerful in what we end up doing and who we end up becoming that, that I believe that when John the Baptist comes and says you're to change your hearts, lives, fullness of that, and trust God, which by the way, and if, you'll, if you want to just turn in your Bible, I don't have it on a screen, but if you want to turn your Bible, turn over to uh, verse 15, and you hear that Jesus says practically the exact same thing. So this isn't just John the Baptist opening up, this is John the Baptist followed by Jesus saying, this is what it's about. Hearts, lives, trust God. This, this is how Mark starts his gospel, but he does it with this overwhelming response we remember from our old testament history that there were 12 tribes 12 tribes of israel and once they finally reached the promised land which took which took chapters and chapters and and centuries to actually happen but the 12 tribes were, were were divided up and 11 of them were given land the, uh, the tribe of Levi wasn't given land because they had a duty in the, in the temple along with the worship, and they sort of served the people. And so, and so it, uh, it, it, was, it was a precursor to what I would say is the modern idea that, um, that, uh, that some people who serve the worship of the church don't, they live in a parsonage. How do you just say it? You know? um, and, and, so, and so they didn't have their own section of land, but the other 11 tribes had a geographical separation, and of all of the geographical separations the largest territory in the promised land was the territory of Judea not to mention that the largest city in the promised land at the time was was probably Jerusalem so you have the largest territory one of the most populated cities and it says everyone in Judea and Jerusalem everyone so so even if that's even that's an exaggeration we're still talking about, and I'm not saying it is, but even if it were, that's a lot of people. And it says they all went down to the Jordan River to see this guy who dressed weird, right? And, and, and had weird dietary, you know, choices to hear his message and get a piece of what he was offering. It says everyone was there. So, so you can imagine, that would have been the religious leaders, but that would have also been the religious forgottens. That would, have, that would have been the men and the women and the elderly and the children and everybody in between. That would have been the well-off and the not well-off and the income producers and just the takers. I mean, it would have been everybody. And then Mark has the audacity to tell us someone else joined in. Verse 9 says, About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open, and the Spirit, like a dove, coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I dearly love. In you 
I find happiness. These three verses that tell of the baptism of Jesus, which are, which are, which are mirrored in, in both Matthew and Luke, and while John doesn't actually describe the baptism of Jesus, John does affirm that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So the Gospel of John the Fourth, all four make reference to Jesus being baptized, and three of them give us the details. They answer for us a critical question. I mean, it's, it's the question but then they also introduce for us uh, a, a nagging problem. We'll get to that in a second. But the big giant question, if you're reading the gospel for the first time or for, or for the hundredth time, is who is this guy? Who is this guy? Jesus. What's, what's, all, the, what's all the fuss about? What's the commotion about? Is he who he says he is? And Right here at the very beginning, in these opening verses, Mark is establishing that Jesus is exactly who he was said to be. And he does that with, with what is really a, a, a subtle but clear reference. If you'll remember what happens just now in Jesus' baptism, and then compare and contrast it here with Isaiah chapter 42, this is one of the pivotal moments. Isaiah chapter 42 I'll read it to you. It says this, But here is my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen who brings me delight. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. Hold that, hold that right there. This is exactly what happens at Jesus' baptism. Here's my spirit. Excuse me, here's my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen who brings me delight. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. This is the, this is the turning point in Isaiah's prophecy that begins to describe a servant of God who would suffer but overcome it all with God's power. This is the suffering servant, the Messiah. And in Isaiah 42, we see the first indications that what Mark begins to describe is happening here and now. So it's answering for us the question, who is Jesus? He's that guy. He's God's man from, from 700 years earlier, and he's finally come. But if that's not enough, he's also, Mark, is also affirming what John's gospel would later on say, which is that Jesus is one of us. We were getting ready for Christmas a few weeks ago as a church, and we, uh, we, were, we were in here in worship, and the gospel reading was from John, and, and it was the prologue, and it was telling us, how, we, how do you get ready for, how do you get ready for, uh, for, for, for Christmas? You, you, you understand who Jesus was, and it, the climax of John's prologue is John chapter 1, verse 14. It, it says this. It says, The Word became flesh and made His home among us. We've seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. That, that's, um, that's the common English. I happen to really like the way the message says it. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Here Mark is telling us that with all the crowds and people of every level and every background and, 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 and everything, there's Jesus in the middle of them. This is the Jesus who left his throne in heaven and came to earth 
but didn't come to earth and take the penthouse spot, right, in the ivory tower. This is the Jesus that came to earth and is with us. This is the Jesus that came to earth and and rubbed shoulders with the common person. This is Jesus that, that moves to Houston County and lives down the street from us. This is the Jesus that is one of us, one of the people. And I'd suggest to you that he's establishing this habit that, that is he mingles with others. He's relational. He's not distant. This, this, this one who has the substance of God in him is a regular person too. And I, and I, and I think that's, a, I think that's Jesus is one of the people, but, but, but the problem, the problem, and, it, and, it's, and it's been a problem for 2,000 years, and maybe you already heard it when we read the scripture, the, the problem is that Jesus, who's one of the people, which is a good thing, came out to be with the people who were there to repent of their sins and be baptized. The early church through today struggles with this question. If John the Baptist was baptizing people who were repenting of their sins, why was Jesus there? If John the Baptist said, you should turn your lives around and quit doing the mm that you've been doing, right? That's in the Greek. <laughs> quit doing the mm you've been doing, right? And give that mm up. Stuff is the word I was going to use, or, or, or bad choices is the word I was going to use. That's what I was referring to, right? Give up the bad choices. Then why is Jesus there? A number of people in the church have asked this question. If Jesus was blameless and without sin, then why did he have to get baptized with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? And we believe that Jesus was, was blameless and without sin because Paul tells us that later on as if we didn't know it. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying that God allowed Jesus to be crucified and, 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 to, and to be tried and convicted and tortured and executed like a criminal outlaw sinner, even though he had not been a sinner or committed any crimes or done anything that was blameless. Jesus hadn't broken the law. All he had done was completely fulfill the law. He just was such a threat to the people that were over the law that they didn't know what to do with him, so they killed him. Jesus was, was without sin, and yet we're back to the problem of why in the world, before he had done even any of those things, he was still without sin. Why in the world would he be baptized? William Barclay suggests that, that these crowds around John the Baptist represent um, like, like a God movement, and that so Jesus was just uh, associating himself with a God movement, and and Maybe that's it. I mean, probably that's it. Uh, you know, go and 
find where God is active and get involved there. That's the kind of message that we've heard before. Go, where, where, where's God at work? Go there and get involved. And that, that's where Jesus is doing. But, but I think, and this is, this is how I want to land the plane, I, I think there's something more powerful that Jesus is offering for us. And, and I, I think... I mean, this sounds like I'm, I'm the preacher giving us the this is the way to start the year sermon, but I don't think this is the way to start the year. This is, I, think, I think Jesus is modeling for us the way to start every day, the way to start every hour, the way to start every relationship. Jesus is modeling for us the essential habit of pressing reset and starting over. Now, in the, in the Methodist Church, we, we, uh, we, we believe that baptism is effective for eternity after just one time. And, I, and I've taught this in confirmation classes, and I've probably talked about it in here before, you know, that, it, that if you consider baptism and all the things that take part when, when we baptize over here or baptize at the altar rail or however we baptize, that, that, that you, you've got words and you've got elements like water and you've got, you've got someone doing it and you've got the person there. But of all of those things, the only thing that gives baptism its power is not the preacher it's not saying the right words because anybody can say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, anybody can say those words. It's, it's not even the water. I mean, this is, this is out of the tap, okay? I mean, like, this is, this is just tap water, right? I brought, um, Julie and I went to the Holy Land. I brought um, holy water back, or whatever holy water is. I, br- I brought water out of the Jordan River, the same Jordan River that John, I, br- I brought it back in a bottle of water, um, and I thought, this is... Back in like 07, I thought, oh, wow, this is awesome. I'm going to be a preacher that's going to be able to pour a little bit of holy water in when we baptize people. And we got it back off the plane and got it home to where we lived in Albany. And I, and I took it out of the suitcase. And what did it have in it? Green living things. And Julie was like, you need to throw that away. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right, I do. Um, it's, not, it's, not the, it's not the fanciness of the water. The power of baptism comes directly from heaven. And so, and so if you've been baptized once and then you return to a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? If, you, if, you, if, you, if, if, if you've been baptized once and, and, you, and, and you've fallen away, here's the thing. It, you might have fallen away, but the one who brought the power to baptism in the first place, he always keeps his promises. He's always faithful. So for us in the Methodist church, it, we, we believe that you, that you can come back and you can give your life back to Christ again, but you don't have to be rebaptized because that still sticks. I mean, the, the power of it is still there. And yet, and yet there is something about what John the Baptist was doing that is for all of us every day, and that is he was preaching a message of repentance. And, and I, think, I, think, I think when Jesus shows up surrounded by this, these crowds of people who are there to repent, he is giving the weight of heaven to what they're doing. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm for repentance. And I'm for starting over. I mean, it didn't matter that he didn't need to repent. It didn't matter that he didn't need to start over because he was blameless. 
He was there to, to bear witness that what they were doing was right because here's the truth. We can start over. And our past does not have to define us. In the, in the world of mathematics, of which I know like that much, and here, here's all of it right here. In the world of mathematics, you can establish a proof, but one way you can, you can study the proof, and I've got math teachers right here that are, that are looking at me going, oh, no, okay. But one way you can study the proof is you can study it one way, but then you can also ask, is the contrast also true? So far, so good. So, so if Jesus is declaring that we can start over and the past doesn't have to define us, consider the contrast. What if, what if you couldn't start over? What if your past 100% defined you? What if what you did yesterday couldn't be forgiven? What if the mistakes you've made that you know about and the mistakes you've made that everybody else knows about, what if that was it? What if it was written in permanent Sharpie ink? Of all people, the church must believe the gospel that says we can start over and the past does not define us. Of all people, we must believe the truth of the gospel that says in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm forgiven too. And I believe what Jesus is doing here in this opening story that Mark gives us is establishing what is a habit for life. I, um, I, I finished a book and I reread the last chapter because it's so deep and I've, I've been sharing it with some people. Um, there's this quote from it. I grew up in Statesboro, and the other, the other middle school that everybody went to, and I went to the little, um, the little weird school on the college campus um, for the weird kids, I guess. Uh, um, the other school in town was William James Middle School. It was named for this guy. He lived over 100 years ago. Uh, and, uh, and if you've ever had an education degree, I mean, his stuff, you know, it, it's still used. But this is what he says. All our life, so far as it, is, as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits, practical, emotional, and intellectual, systematically organized for our good or bad, and bearing us irresistibly towards our destiny. I mean, ch check the dates again. This is not a new age writer who's written a book and is now trying to get picked up at the 10 o'clock in the morning TV shows, right? That's not what this is. This is 100 years ago. A scholar whose work is still used, and he tells us that all of life, 
There's a mass of habits. I believe Jesus from the beginning is establishing the habit that we are to pick up. And it is this. You can press reset. And you can start over. And in the church we call that repentance. And so so every year or so we offer this service of remembering our baptism. In a moment, like, like, like you would on a communion Sunday, you'll have the chance to just come up as, you, as you're invited and, and to touch the water. Some people will place it on their heads. Some people will just return to their seats. Hear these words of the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, through the sacrament of baptism, we are initiated into Christ's holy church. We are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation and given new birth through water and the Spirit. All this is God's gift offered to us without price. But now I ask you, church, Not as though you're coming to be baptized for the first time, but as though you are waking up to a new day and realizing you have the opportunity to start over. Here are the fundamental questions of what it's all about. So join with me. On behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? I do. And do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? I do. And do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in His grace, and promise to serve Him as your Lord in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races? And we say, I do. Amen. Let us pray. Eternal Father, when nothing existed but chaos, you swept across the dark waters and brought forth light. In the days of Noah, you saved those on the ark through water. After the flood, you set in the clouds a rainbow. When you saw your people as slaves in Egypt, you led them to freedom through the sea. Their children you brought through the Jordan to the land which you promised. In the fullness of time, you sent Jesus nurtured in the water of a womb. He was baptized by John and anointed by your spirit. He called his disciples to share in the baptism of his death and resurrection and to make disciples of all nations. So this day, pour out your Holy Spirit to bless and gift, bless this gift of water in those who receive it, to wash away their sin and clothe them in righteousness throughout their lives, that dying and being raised with Christ, they may share in his final victory. All praise to you, eternal Father. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns forever. Amen and amen.